0: You could like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin sale pro, show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. televised, black power, be scared guys that be standing there like they paralyzed, huh? We safe for the system, cause we above the system, we keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth to crystal,
1: but that's for self defense, make sure we have no issues, be sure to leave it
0: at the door if you have it with you, this for them freedom fighters, that lost they freedom, until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem, this for the general. King Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck okay, me, i mad Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not to ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, Stand for Free the Black Panthers It's up the Black Police Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here. Been a bill here, up coin tail bro. RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. Rbg. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish stuff. Don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, NBPP.org
2: We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indentured servant unless you could acquire. The amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
3: Welcome everyone. I'm Mark Zuckerman, President of the Century Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us for today's event and a special thank you to our esteemed panelists and moderator and to our host, NYU Wagner. The Century Foundation is a progressive, independent think tank that drives policy change to make people's lives better. We pursue economic, racial, and gender equity in education, healthcare, and work. At PCF, we believe that public policy is an essential tool to expand opportunity and ensure justice for all. We also know that policy cannot be blind to our history. Sadly, this history includes the stain of slavery, racism, and white supremacy. We see this legacy enduring today in all facets of life, from countless killings of unarmed black men and women, vast racial disparities in healthcare, to a black and white wealth gap of roughly 10 to 1, just to name a few. In order to advance racial justice and equity today, we must address inequities and equalities of our past. That's why I'm so looking forward to today's panel, where we will get into the weeds on how to implement reparations in America. It's a conversation that's frankly long overdue, and based on the overwhelming interest we received at this event, it's one that people are more than ready to have. With that, I'd like to introduce Sherry Gleed, my friend and dean of NYU Wagner School of Public Service. Sherry, over to you.
4: I'm Sherry Glee, Dean of NYU Wagner's Graduate School of Public Service. I am so delighted to be partnering once again with the Century Foundation to advance our conversations about key issues in public service. Uh, In today's conversation, we're going to discuss getting to the root of the black-white wealth gap. That gap perpetuates systemic racism. We're going to talk about how the implementation of reparations can help address this crisis. I want to welcome our moderator, Danielle Belton, Editor-in-Chief at The Root, and welcome our speakers. Cedric Asante Muhammad, Chief Race, Wealth, and Community at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, and Keith Young, a city councilman in Asheville, North Carolina. During the event, you can submit your questions by clicking the Q&A button on your screen. A recording of today's event will be made available 48 hours after the event on both the TCF.org and NYU Wagner YouTube pages. And now to kick us off, I'd like you to welcome our keynote speaker, Representative Barbara Lee.
2: Well, good afternoon. First of all, let me just say how honored I am to be with NYU Wagner and Century Foundation and for today's panel, um, talking about um, what is so critical in terms of where we are in our country as it relates to uh, systemic racism and the historical context for how we got to this point. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, reparations. And so I just want to thank all of our panelists um, for being here today and just uh, know that uh, I truly believe that we're at this pivotal point in our history when we need to acknowledge and to really understand uh, how systemic racism has truly been built into our society for the last uh, 401 years and all of the insidious ways that it remains part of every aspect of our life. I always say um, systemic racism is part of the DNA of the United States. Inequality is at the heart of every crisis that we're dealing with right now. And, uh, of course, um, here we have the United States, of course, the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world, yet our poverty rates continue to eclipse most industrialized nations, disproportionately impacting communities of color. Uh, And um, make no mistake, uh, 401 years of systemic racism, oppression, Jim Crow, the Black Code, uh, the lack of access to voting rights. Uh, We have a system in this country which... um, Perpetuate white supremacy. And that's why I'm so uh, pleased that Congresswoman Jackson Lee has supported and introduced H.R. 40, which, of course, is the, the bill to establish a commission to study but also to develop reparations. I have H.R. 100, which is legislation that would establish a commission on truth, racial healing, and transformation, which many countries around the world, actually over 40 countries, have established to really have the historical context that brought about either slavery, genocide, crimes against humanity. As an example of uh, correcting and repairing the damage of the past, just look at our criminal justice system and uh, mass incarceration of African Americans, disproportionate to our population. As we witness the brutal, brutal murder of Mr. George Floyd and other African Americans throughout, I won't even say the decades, I say throughout the centuries, we're witnessing the manifestations, once again, of systemic racism, which we can trace all the way back to uh, 401 years ago when the first enslaved Africans were brought to America. And so the time is now for us to examine the effects of slavery and understand that and put it into historical context, what we see today as it relates to systemic racism. We have to really uh, look at how our history has impacted the laws and policies of today, because police reform uh, and making policing uh, a a real issue around safety in our communities, because it has not been about safety. But when you look at reparations and repairing the damage, I think what our young people are talking about in terms of reimagining policing really is one step forward to making sure that we have have communities which are safe for African Americans and people of color. And so we want to make sure that we have this historical context of slavery and the enslaved Africans who built this country for over 250 years uh, to put in historical context of what we see today and what we know as it relates to police murders, the disproportionate rates of COVID-19, health care disparities, the wage gap, the wealth gap. You know all of the issues that um, systemic racism really uh, reveals. And so we have to have this uh, moment where we tell the truth. Uh, We need to put together a process for understanding and healing and then move toward transformation, which of course the transformation means disrupting and dismantling systemic racism and building a country based on racial justice and racial equity. So therein lies the rationale for uh, reparations. And reparations can take many forms, but we remember the point is to repair the damage. And so Thank goodness we're moving forward with HR 40 in the Congress. California has just passed a reparations bill, so we're going to be—I think—one of the first states that's going to have on record a commission to look at and how to and develop reparations. And so this is not about holding uh, individuals responsible. This is about holding a system of government responsible for system for systemically and structurally discriminating and excluding and oppressing. African-Americans. And so we have to unpack that, that uh, system that we have in this country and rebuild it based on fairness and justice. And so in rebuilding this, uh, HR 40 and reparations is essential because we have generations of African-Americans who have not been able to acquire wealth. Another form of reparations could be making sure that every African-American would be able to own a home and to begin to build wealth for their children and for future generations. We have not had that access in the past. And so, once again, the study is extremely important because once we conduct the study and we know it's needed, we at the same time develop a process that would put forth what uh, reparations would look like in this country. So thank you again very much for inviting me to be with you. And I hope that you would encourage all of your friends, your colleagues, your relatives to ask their members of Congress to support H.R. 40 and H.R. 100, because we need to get these bills to the floor, we need to get them passed, and we need to get on with doing the work of repairing the damage of the last 401 years.
5: Thank you so much, Representative Barbara Lee, for those remarks. For everyone at home, I'm Danielle Belton, Editor-in-Chief of the Root, and I'm pleased to moderate today's discussion. I'd like to bring in our panelists, Diedrich Asante-Mohamed, the Chief Race, Wealth, and Community for uh, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition and Keith Young, city councilman from Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome guys. Oh, you both need to unmute yourselves.
6: Yes. Thank you. Good
5: to be here. Glad to have you both. So my first question is for Diedrich. Many people don't realize the full extent of African American contribution to generational wealth, Health and the overall success of this country. And we're not talking a few billion dollars, but trillions of dollars, some reports as much as 94 trillion of labor taken from us since the advent of slavery. What would America be without the forced contributions of black people?
6: Yeah, I mean, I I think you've uh, helped highlight that in the question. I mean, clearly, that the economy of the United States was based on enslavement and was based on the appropriation of not just African people, but of indigenous people's land, right? And that is, you know, the the basis of not just, you know, agricultural industry, which was, you know, very strongly in the South around cotton and these types of things, but also it was the basis of a lot of finance uh, in the North and even manufacturing because cotton was made into things and even the insurance industry in New England uh, a lot of the wealth was made in uh, importing and exporting well I guess importing uh, human beings uh, you know from usually the Caribbean uh, from the triangle trade uh, from west africa so so it was a holistic uh forced contribution and its a, and it's a, it 's a contribution that really built all strands of the American economy uh, but what I would look at is i don 't look at reparations as so much well, they took $50,000 or $50 trillion, and so we need $50 trillion back. I look at it to repair, right? It's a bridge the inequality that we have today. And I, like many others, see that wealth and racial wealth inequality is probably one of the best indicators of inequality. And I've done some back-of-the-napkin estimates that African-Americans, have about $3 trillion of wealth, but to have you know, what we would have uh, as part of our demographic representation, 13% of the country, we have 13% of the wealth, we should have about $13 trillion. So we're talking about how do we uh, you know, bridge that, add that additional $10 trillion. And that's not just $10 trillion because uh, what money you get in income doesn't just magically transform to wealth. So usually you need more actual dollars to create wealth. Uh, then you know, just that ten trillion. so that is the frame I look at it is is how do we bridge this racial wealth inequality today?
1: Now,
5: when I think about reparations, I often think about what my father has said to me in the past about um, his family and the legacy that we have, where people basically had their labor stolen from them or were criminally underpaid for the work that they did. And so my father, you know, would jokingly say that every raise that he got, he felt like he deserved it not just for himself, but for his mother and father and those who Mm -hmm. came before him all deserve this money because they were so grossly underpaid uh, for the work that they did do in the past. You know, my father was able to use that money to put forth in home ownership, in my education and my sister's education. So when we look at reparations, do we consider things like, the housing crisis, our educational disparities, health disparities as part of the reparations
7: discussion.
6: Yes. I mean, again, I think that's why I really do look at this idea of repair, right? It's, and even though I'm focused on wealth, wealth in our you know, capitalist economy is so foundational to every other economic or socio-economic indicator, whether it's education or health, you know, and two, you're helping highlight, we're not just talking about what happened a couple hundred years ago, you know uh, there was forced labor after slavery right uh, uh, in, in the south and even arguably in the north. there is uh, uh, still today uh, devaluation of uh, african American homes as compared to white homes right There is the kind of ghettoization of African Americans and of ghettoization of skills that keeps us underpaid, so all of those things need to be brought together and looking at what it require to repair. Because I think once we do repair and we have greater wealth equity, a lot of these other uh, indicators of inequality will diminish.
5: Now, uh, Keith, you're currently tackling the issue of reparations on a local level. Is that the path forward for many African-Americans who have long been disenfranchised by the communities that they live in?
8: Um, you know, I, I, believe it's a, I believe it's a beginning for a pathway forward. You know, this isn't just a, a city of Asheville issue in, in my uh, local municipality. These are these are basically issues that local municipalities and uh, diverse communities across this country have to wrestle with uh, through a larger context within American history. And what has happened throughout that history brings us to this very point in time, which ultimately, you know, we are at a precipice where Action needs to occur on a a federal level and state levels, because local governments, uh, as such, where I work, you know, can't go it alone. And, you know, I personally, I personally want generations to be made whole through systemic action, um, the same systemic action that got us here and basically has produced uh, policies that have outlived many dead politicians and generations of black Americans. So uh, in tackling this issue. You know, I do believe that it's a beginning for a pathway forward, definitely.
5: And, you know, what did it take for you to get, you know, your city to even consider this conversation around reparations? And is it a model that other communities could follow?
8: Um. Well, you know, in, in this moment, we have a lot of issues as a country to deal with um, that affect all citizens. But moreover, I think The death of George Floyd uh, has has been the catalyst to the nation's largest civil rights movement that we're we're witnessing. And a movement that is supported by Black Americans, but also by white allies of the Black community. Um, With that said, what we did doesn't have to be replicated in the same manner, but it can define how other local governments move forward You know, there are a few key ingredients needed to make the recipe work. Um, Some variables that are in the political realm, you know, can't be accounted for because every space across this country is different. What works in my community might not work somewhere else. I think, you know, the way that we approach it, you have to have a champion. You have to have a political leader, someone who is willing to be a leader in the sense of, Reparations may not be completely 100% um, ready to be implemented, but that leader has to be able to step out on a limb and sometimes disappoint their constituencies at a rate that they can absorb. And so you have to have a convener where where, what what I did was there's a a retired professor um, of liberal arts and, and culture here in our city who had over 20 years of data. Uh, based on some of the disparities specifically to our area, uh, I also partnered with local activists and so we had to kind of form sort of a guerrilla warfare tactic team that was very very small uh, that I could approach our council with the resolution that we came up with and pretty much you know tell folks hey this is the this is the political hill that I go die on feel free to come die with me if you're against it but um You have to be able to be straightforward. uh, The political, uh, you have to understand the political ground in your your area. And you have to have a convener, a champion, to be able to bring a small group of people together that can organize very quickly and make these things happen.
5: Oh, those are all excellent uh, excellent advice there for people who want to try to, to replicate this in their own communities. My next question is for both of you. Which is more obtainable? the community-based model that we've just finished discussing that kind of addresses systemic racism and economic inequalities? Or is there something on the federal level that we could be doing, or is it some combination of the both?
6: I will jump in. And uh, yeah, I think definitely we want to do uh, be working on both areas, right? And in some local communities, it might be, might be more doable to pass some type of bill like an HR 40 to create a committee to investigate reparations, or there might, I mean, reparations can be such a broad thing and we're talking a lot about actual financial reparations, some type of investment, but some people also talk about reparations in terms of apologies, in terms of monuments, these types of things. So there's a whole different, uh, a large realm of what reparations can be. And so in some local communities, you might be able to get support for some aspect of reparations, but it's clear, to me, that without national reparations, that includes massive investments, we're not going to get that repair, which I'm looking, which I'm looking for. But I do think the local models can show us what is doable, how to help move consciousness uh, forward, and that is not some crazy radical action, but it's something that communities across the country are already engaging in.
8: I would, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. I, I would totally agree with that. I think you know when you look at you know you know, what's more obtainable, I would say, you know, we've had folks around this country that have studied reparations and worked on reparations in theory for an extended period of time. And we as uh, we at this moment have to move from theory to practice. So I would say any model that's obtainable in your local community to help push forward, uh, quote unquote, the consciousness of the matter, as the gentleman stated, it, it would be, you know, somewhere to start. I think, when you look at you know, where we are, we are going to have to have some sort of federal investment to make this thing work. As I stated earlier, local, local governments can't go it alone. Um, but for the most part, you have to be able to move the needle. And that's something that we haven't been able to do in a very long time, uh, ever, so to speak. We've got the bill, the H.R. 40 bill that's, that's in Congress, uh, that's been there for quite an extended period of time, and representative from Texas, Sheila Jackson Lee, who's picked up that torch and that mantle to to try to move the go to try to move it the ball forward. So I think you know a community based model works. I think whatever you can get done in your community um, helps push forward the overall uh, aspect of reparations. So,
6: and, and and I just want to add to that. I know I started off. But I just want to add. I mean, to me, it is crazy the idea that we can't pass nationally hr 40 because hr 40 isn't even reparations it's just a right. committee to look at inequality and talk about what are the options of reparations. so and i you know one positive aspect is that many of the democrats who were running for president last year actually endorsed hr 40 which is something that hadn't happened in the past so there's little steps of progress happening at the national level hr 40 won't be reparations but you know, it really should be something we can at least do to help further move the ball as people like Mr. Young and other local leaders are moving the ball, uh, you know, in their areas as well.
5: Now, what's keeping, in the, what's keeping our political leaders from having this conversation on a national level? What are some of the impediments to what we want to see take place here?
8: If you don't mind, I'd love to jump in. Yes, Go ahead. Sure. I, I think, you know, politically it has to be, for some folks, it has to be the right mix. I mean, there is a lot of apprehension depending on who you represent and where you're representing them at. I, I don't think that uh, for a large segment of individuals around this country, reparations is something that they want to see. Uh, there, there's all sorts of, of, of things that, that, that go into the apprehension of a political um person who's in office, who, who wants to stay in office, you know, that they have to wrestle with. And so I think it's all based on, you know, the old saying that all politics is local. I think that has a lot to do with it. But I think as we continue to move, move this forward, you know, uh, in, in local municipalities across the country and, and maybe some, some state governments might take this up, it helps become a bit more palatable regardless of where you stand on the issue, because ultimately you you have to have a majority in Congress and the Senate and the president that's, that's willing to do some meaningful change uh, to make this thing happen.
6: Yeah. And, and, I'll put for, you know, I think on an optimistic note, which I'm not known for, I'm used, I'm known for being fairly pessimistic, but on an optimistic note, you know, I think that people, many people, particularly white people have associated reparations with punishing white people today for something that happened in the past. I think there's becoming a greater acceptance of this idea of reparations, as we're getting clearer, we're not talking about punishing people today for something that happened in the past, but dealing with a contemporary problem that needs to be addressed and how we're going to heal that inequality. So it's not about punishment, it's about fixing a problem. And everyone, of all political stripes now, at least say they want an equal opportunity society, society where race, you know, doesn't hinder you. So there should be, uh, you know, if we have that framing of reparations is to repair, not to punish, it should be something that more and more people should be able to uh, get on board with.
5: I'm glad you brought up that point about how the perception that people have of reparations is that it's punishing someone, as opposed to just bringing equality and leveling a playing field that has been grossly unfair since the founding of this nation. Um, when we look at you, uh, Diedrich, you kind of talked about this, some of the different forms that uh, reparation could take place in, whether it's monetary, whether it's symbolic, whether it's a conversation like how they did in South Africa, where they have the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Um, where this is for actually both of you, um, Where do you kind of stand on what is necessary in order to repair the damage that has been done to the black community in this country?
6: Mr. Young wants to go first. Do you want me to go first? You can go for it. Okay, I'll go for it. Um, so I would, you know, I'm fairly, I'm fairly materialist in that, you know, I think it can be great to have some conversations, and I've supported. There was a documentary made about ten, twelve years ago called Traces of the Trade, which looked at a white uh, family and their. Uh, ancestors who were some of the leading slave traders in the country, and they were out of Connecticut, uh, and you know, look at the trade rate, and they've done this whole roundtable discussion on race relations. So, and I think it's really important to distinguish between discussing race relations and discussing race repair, right? And you know, and, and you, there's place for both, but I just want to make sure that I do believe that it is you know, economics uh, investments in communities that are keeping uh, that are maintaining inequality. It is good if we had better relations, and so we should have conversations, but I'm much more focused on the economic investment. And I do think part of that is to, to, to uh, create an economic investment that will address the problem. We have to understand the problem, and part of that will be an understanding of history. So I do think we have to have a kind of understanding of, uh, again, racial inequality, not just being about race relations, but about institutions, structures that have created deep socioeconomic inequality that still exists today. And now if we're going to address that, we have to, we have to create some new structures to uh, actually have a greater, a more equal society.
5: Keith, did you have some thoughts?
6: Sure.
8: Um, you know, I think, you know, black people in this country, we're, we're dealing with issues that are systemic in nature. Uh, reparations is a very complex issue and it requires a solution that looks beyond, you know, a one-time payment or check. I think, you know, when we did this here in Asheville, uh, there are a lot of folks who said, you know, what you all set out to do isn't reparations. The economic part of it, giving someone an actual check hadn't occurred. Now, we didn't exclude that in our resolution and, and explicitly. So that can still happen. I think what has to happen is, you know, if we want to give monetary reparations to individuals around this country, we have to make sure that the bank is willing to cash the check. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, we need to be made whole in so many different areas where black Americans have great disparities. I mean, uh, healthcare, education, employment, criminal justice, business ownership, home ownership, overall equity, and of course, generational wealth. I think one of the main highlights of that in the moment that we're, that we're in right now with COVID-19 is the major health disparities in, in the black community. So the folks that, who contract the coronavirus and actually die from it due to the lack of, of, of the, the, the health care system that, that you know, black Americans aren't, aren't invested in in a way that, that make us whole. And so we have to fix the system um, that's broken. You know, it, it was well, – actually, let me take that back. It's not broken. It works exactly how it was meant to work. We have to embed systemics in these things so that when monetary, uh, when monetary reparations uh, comes out of it, you know, the bank will cash that check because the system will then be set up to work for those folks as well, if that makes sense, Dion. No, that does make
5: sense. Um, I want to open this up to some questions that I just received from our audience, so thank you for all of you who have submitted questions. Uh, The first one is, how can we make sure that throughout the process of implementing reparations, Black communities are trusted and involved in leading the work of where and how reparations should be distributed?
6: Yeah, and I think part of that is, I mean, and actually I'd be interested to hear how it was done uh, at the local level. I know in H.R. 40, I mean, that's part of the reason why you need a committee to investigate reparations and in, the, in kind of theories about how this reparations would occur, there would also be a committee uh, as to how this would be implemented. And, of course, it would be essential that African-Americans are well represented, I would say majority represented, and African-Americans who actually have serious understanding and knowledge of not just the history, but of the contemporary issues and what types of investments could actually move these things forward. So it's going to be, you know, essential that uh, the committees that coordinate this are predominantly African-American and have knowledge in the areas we're looking to address.
8: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, when you look at, you know, how can the community be involved in, and, and what redress happens, um, yeah, how can they be made whole? I think you know they have they have to be at the, on the, at the table, and regardless of where you're at, if if you are in a community where your local elected officials or, officials or your state government is trying to implement reparations, I'm pretty sure you're going to have a group of individuals that are going to be very excited and very proactive about making their voice heard um, to tell you what specifically they want i think there has to be some 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 basic groundwork laid you know out in whatever bill or legislation that you do to address some of the disparities that i mentioned earlier but for the most part the community that you do this in is going to have proactive activists and community leaders and people who are willing to be involved to tell you uh, as a elected official or whomever is in the position to implement reparations this is how we need to be made whole aside from all the other things that you may be wanting to do in your local legislation or bill.
5: Okay. Uh, for our next question, uh, we have, how, if at all, does the movement to defund police forces and transfer the money into community development intersect with reparations?
8: Uh, I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll talk about that because we just, here in, in my city, just last night at a council meeting, we began the process where we um, reallocated 3% of our police budget. I will say this. I think the defund the police and the intersection of reparations had a lot to do with the, the fact of the disparities that continue to occur in this country for black Americans. I think, you know, again, these systemic issues that we're dealing with have been embedded for an extended period of time that that bring us to the point to where, you know, Folks are out marching in the streets. George Floyd catalyzed the movement. And we see black men and women being killed at the hands of police. Pretty much, we can't go a month and a half without having someone else in the news. So that intersection occurs with the disparities. I will say this. I would be very careful about how we utilize the money from defunding the police because in my community, uh, there's a big push to take some of that money and put it over into a uh, non or figure What? What, uh, what the police do and how can someone else do it better, okay? You know, my thing is with the money is it doesn't matter where you move the money if the system is still set up to police me as a black man in a, in, a, in the same way that the outcomes will remain the same. Meaning we can defund the police all we want. We can move the money all we want. But when I leave a council meeting, I'm still going to get pulled over. And there is a possibility that I could get my head kicked in just based off of the systemic. So we have to be able to figure out how do we change the way that police police me or you as a black man or woman in this country. Um, But the intersection of those two are based off of the disparities that we've seen through the systemics uh, throughout the history of this country that we're dealing with right now.
6: And I'll just, I'll just throw in there that, you know, I think a fundamental aspect of this idea of defunding the police is to me, defunding white supremacy, right? I mean, I think the idea is that, is, is that policing has been used in a racist, racialized way to oppress communities. We And that's true, and it's not just in policing. It's in housing, it's in healthcare, it's in corporate America. So we need to defund all of those things. And it doesn't mean now there's no funding in education or healthcare. No, now we need to refund it in a way that actually is uh, addressing these inequalities. So I think, you know, that fundamental aspect of it is something, you know, that I find positive in helping to deal with these issues of reparation.
5: Okay, Uh, for our next question, Um, How can monetary reparations interact with structural change to truly make things equal or equitable for the black community? For instance, does getting more money mean people will have more equal experiences in things like education and health? How does monetary reparations fix issues like existing segregation?
8: I think I I mentioned that earlier. Um, When you talk about the systemics that are set up, you know, to prevail in this system. Monetary reparations, in my opinion, aren't going to do – I mean, they will do some good. They will do some good. But when you look at trying to sustain generation after generation, let's say we give each this generation a, a great deal of money or whatever. If the systemics remain the way that they are, it's probably going to be a good chance that your, your, your future offspring and great-grandkids – are going to be back in the same position because even though you gave us a check to cash, the systemic still persisted that allowed us to be in this situation that we're currently in. And apparently it has a good track record of working for over 400 years because we're still in this same position, despite the major gains that black Americans have made in this country, regardless of the systemics, which I think is admirable uh, for us to begin with, but we've got to, break down the system that we're dealing with right now with all these major disparities again in health care and housing and, and education and, and the wealth gap and, and so on.
6: Yeah, and, you know, you know, some people are dismissive of this idea of writing a check. I, I'm not. Like, I wrote a piece in The Guardian about, uh, you know, $20,000 a year for 20 years for African Americans as part, let me say, part of the reparations package, because, because again, I am dismissive of $20,000 and you're done, and that's supposed to repair racial right. economic inequality, right? No, that's not going to repair racial economic inequality. And even $20,000 over 20 years uh, probably isn't enough. We need some other things as well. But the reason I wrote this is that I wanted to highlight that it takes time. Like, giving someone <laughs> one inclusion of money is not going to solve what's been happening for generations. It takes time to... Takes, when you first get the money, you're going to be dealing with you know, immediate needs right? and debts that you've had or maybe trying to find an apartment in a better place. But it's only over time that you're going to be able to use that money to actually invest in capital and get returns in. You're not going to do that the first year or the second year. So we have to be clear, this reparations is going to be long-term. Uh, you know, even, even if checks are written, it's not going to be – well, at least I don't think it should be a one check. It has to be over time because it's over time we got in this situation. I would just, before
8: you go on to the next question, those are very good points. I would agree with all of that. I would also say my, one of my major concerns was that, you know, for, for our, our, our bill locally here to not have local government or anyone who wanted to replicate that say, because you got a check, our obligation to the black community is done. Meaning, if you don't fix the systemics, even if you continue to give the check, people, are, people might say, our obligation to you is done. Everything is, 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 is well and good now, kind of like, you know, when we elected President Obama, there's, oh, there's no more racism in America. We, we elected a black president. It doesn't work that way. And so I agree with everything the gentleman said um, earlier, but just wanted to add that point as well.
5: No, it was an, it was an excellent point. Um, I'm a strong believer that it's going to take more than just writing a check and then, say, then just wiping your hands of the issue. Like, it's just not a realistic approach considering it took us hundreds and hundreds of years to get into this situation. Uh, For our next question, um, how do the panelists suggest addressing race relations, particularly when it comes to poor white people who racism is not tied to their access
6: to wealth? Sure. Well, I think if you're talking about helping poor whites, Whites and asset poverty. Uh, generally, we're probably not talking about reparations unless you're talking about some particular group that had some historic wrong to them. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, that particular community you're talking about. I mean, it's, you know, there has been reparations for Jewish, you know, people around the world, right, because they did have wrongs done to them, and different Europeans have had wrong to them. But uh, because you're for reparations doesn't mean that I also don't support programs that help poor people of all race that didn't suffer through, you know, suffer racism, or what have you. So I'm for very progressive policies. I'm for, you know, everything from full employment to individual development accounts to, you know, uh, free community college, all of these things that I think will help uh, poor people or disenfranchised people of all uh, communities. Uh, We just recognize that I think the key point about reparations and someone at sent an email too about indigenous people, and I think there's a huge space for Native American reparations as well, though our focus right now is African American reparations that right. uh, you know there's uh, a, a lot of policy that needs to be set forth to deal with the broad issues, but reparations recognize that there is a particular uh, uh, particular, particular acts done against a particular people that need to be addressed, and that is where we 're dealing with reparations, but i 'm for a much broader progressive policy that brings back an economic mobility that we haven't seen even for white people in about 40 or 50 years. This has been a very regressive economy.
8: I think the gentleman laid it out very well in in what he said. I think, you know, when you, when you look at that, it's one of those, I think there's a great deal of, of Americans that promote uh, social economic policy that will uh, uplift everybody, no matter whether you're black, white, red, yellow, or blue. I think in the instance of reparations, um, You know, there's the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats, but I say a rising tide only lifts all boats if all boats are prepared to ride the wave. And I think when you talk about reparations to black America, we're not prepared to ride the wave because the opportunity that we have uh, set out in front of us has not been unabated. It has been with obstruction. It has been with roadblocks, and it has been something that we've had to overcome as an extra step that requires equity in the system. Um, and so, you know, I always tell myself it's not up for me to educate folks who may feel that way. There's there's a great deal of history in this country um, that goes back a long time. For instance, I hope I'm not taking up too much time, but I do want to say this. You know, back in 1860, uh, the United States had, I think, nearly 4 million slaves and translated in today's dollars probably about those slaves were worth about $3, $3 billion. The value of those slaves uh, combined was greater than every asset of every financial institution, every factory, every railroad uh, during this period. And so Amer- America has been catalyzed, um, the economic superpower that it is by black Americans, black, black individuals. And so when you go back and you look at that thorough history from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to all the different things that have happened to to black Americans, even the homeowners loan corporation back in the 1930s and forties. When you start talking about generational wealth, we've been given opportunity, but our opportunity always comes with an asterisk. And so individuals who may have a, a bias about, you know, why, why should you get reparations and not me? I think you have to look at the history of it and understand that, you know, there's a great deal of Americans who promote uh, social economic policy that supports everyone. But in this instance, um, we've got to make sure that all votes on this situation are ready to ride the wave.
1: Okay. And
5: I think we have time for one final question. This one is directed to Council Member Young. Can you say more about the recently passed resolution and your city manager's role in determining short, medium, and long-term plans, how will the city manager work with the commission?
8: Well, in our city, we've got it set up right now where we have a specific Department of Equity and Inclusion, and their job is specifically to look at instances such as this where they can plug in. Um, Our city manager and our equity department will work hand-in-hand to bring forth uh, suggestions, but this commission is set up in a way that it's, It's made for other municipalities in our county to join in, which some have already. It's set up for private entities and businesses to join in, uh, leaders around the community to to join in, and figure out a way together how to move forward with community input. So there are sort of two different tracks that are working. There's the internal track from our local government that's going to be looking specifically on how we can – implement a reparations program, but there's also gonna be the external, the community working together to figure out how they can also be a big part of that as well.
5: Thank you so much. So we are out of time. We have talked so much and so much important information and I'm glad that we were able to be part of this conversation. I wanna thank everyone who attended this discussion and a special thank you to Representative Barbara Lee to Diedrich Asante Muhammad, Keith Young, and the NYU Wagner and the Century Foundation team. Again, a recording of this will be made available within 48 hours, following the event on tcf.org and wagner.nyu.edu, where you can learn more about future events as well. Thank you, everyone. I'm Danielle Belton from The Root, and I'm glad you could join us.
9: We'd like to acknowledge and pay deep respect to the indigenous peoples, past, present and future, in particular the Lenape and the Canarsie. We acknowledge and are extremely grateful to them for the land that we are gathered on this very moment. Please join me in this acknowledgement with much respect and gratitude. do we begin to undo 400 years worth of ties, respecting the ties that bind us while dismantling the knots that would keep us in bondage? A national anthem, a foundational document, an original sin. One nation under God, indivisible, our collective birthright. Square that with the constant drumbeat for a remedy for grievances that stretches back to the 1607 arrival of America's first undocumented immigrants on the east bank of the Powhatan River about two and a half miles southwest of modern day Williamsburg, Virginia, in what was once the Sukamana country of the indigenous Powhatan people. A relationship that started with dancing and feasting and evolved less than two generations later into a treaty that confined the Powhatan to reservations and required the declining indigenous community to pay yearly tribute to the English for the privilege. If the dictionary definition of compensation or money or material payable by defeated country to another country or individual for losses suffered during or as a result of war is to be believed, then America's first formal experiment with reparations left its indigenous people in debt to an alien enemy combatant. We've come a long way since 1646. What about reparations now? With all due respect to that historical context, we have some contemporary thought leaders here to share their respective insights. It's a question with deep roots leading to a national conversation that's finally starting to bloom. And we're here to do our part and confront it as a community. Welcome to this Brick Be Heard town hall, presented in collaboration with Seeding Sovereignty. Taking a walk right now to introduce you to those folks I prefaced just a little bit earlier, you can see the town in our town hall is here. Thank you guys for joining us. So if you are watching on television or on the internet right now, or if you happen to be in the room, we appreciate it. And I'm going to do the honor of introducing the folks who are assembled for our panel here. Star the chief.
0: This town hall is V S you want to discuss reparations
9: we do, do want to do discuss reparations and we're going to do it as a collective so if you would like to take part in the conversation is, is, we'll have yes, the conversation is, is, yes. Basically. It's not a campaign slogan for
0: the Democrats. It's about all black people. It's not a, a game. Reparations is not a game. You know what? The reparations
9: movement is happening, is and if you'd like Reporation to participate, you can stay.
0: Reparations is not a game. game. Reparations is, is not a game.
6: Reparations is not
9: a game. All right, is everybody else secure in their seats? Let's have a conversation. And I can assure you, no one in this building, no one in this zip code thinks that reparation is a game. Agreed? One, two, three, four, five, six, and my community? All right. Forward. I'm going to introduce you right now to Chief Perry. Thank you for being here right now. It really is uh, an honor to have you here, especially in the face of people who would... uh, Make that we're not here, but we're glad to have you. Just to let you know, Chief Dwayne Perry is the chief of the Ramapo-Lenape Nation, and he is no stranger to the front line. He's also a Vietnam veteran, and he's been engaging in a fight right now for his very community. So thank you for spending some time with us this evening, Chief. All right, now I'm looking at Noah Millman. Noah Millman is a Brooklynite. He also happens to be a screenwriter, and he is a columnist and critic at The Week. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Coleman Hughes is a columnist and contributor at Quillette, The New York Times, as well as The Wall Street Journal, and he's also written for The National Review. Thanks for joining us, Coleman. And ljoy williams in addition to being a brilliant political strategist yes. is also the president of the brooklyn chapter of the naacp thank you for joining us ma'am the reverend mark thompson is here he's one of the early founding members of Encobra. we appreciate him being here he's been a voice on reparations and the fight for liberation for a very long time and we're happy that you were here this evening thank you Finally, uh, Professor Katherine Frankie is here. She's a professor of law, gender, and sexuality studies at Columbia University, and you may be very interested to know is the author of the just-released book. Oh, it gets better. The book is titled Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition, and just by way of a little uh, letting you know what it's about, it makes the case for racial reparations today by telling the story of an experiment in South Carolina and Mississippi in the 1860s, where people were actually given land as a form of reparations that was later taken away from them. So historical context, it's all in the book. So we're going to start with, yeah, Professor Frankie. Welcome. So I'm going to Bernie Sanders you all for just a moment. I'm saying we're talking about reparations, but what is it? I'm going to ask each of you, starting with you, Chief, to give me your working definition of reparations.
10: Well, my thought is perhaps the most important thing that reparations can do is present uh, history and knowledge as it really occurred, not as a paradigm to abuse and to manipulate the society. A good example would be uh, my people were instrumental in ensuring the success of the American experiment. However, they said, we'll let you guys stay alive in place. That's okay. That meant we were the first slaves in the state of New Jersey. So reparation, I think, starts to have to start with the integrity of true history, (laughs) of knowledge, before we can work beyond uh, some more finite uh, approaches.
9: So, Noah, from where you sit, how would you define reparations today? I'm
11: probably the least qualified to do that on the panel, but um, uh, when I think of what reparations means, it is um, an attempt to uh, reconcile with the past um, uh, between communities uh, that one has uh, suffered at the hands of the other. Uh, and whether that is in the form of monetary or whatever, it is, it is an intercommunal uh, agreement, effectively, that what we are doing now is settling uh, a longstanding grievance
9: Eljoy, I know you're a fan of a very large perspective on just exactly what reparations meant but if you had to top-line it and give your elevator pitch as it were what would you say reparations are
1: now
12: well I would begin where the chief begins is the, the first thing is the acknowledgement and the truth-telling of our combined history Um, And so that means not telling the story of the American experiment if we're simply talking about reparations here. You know, there's a larger conversation about reparations. But if we're talking about it here, then we have to tell the true story, and it can't be through the lens of the white colonizers who were here. So it has to be a holistic conversation, starting with there. Um, We're talking. You know, you mentioned um, the book. We're still uncovering Mm -hmm. stories and places of, you know, what was done, what harm was done. That is part of reparations. Part of it is uncovering everything and then being able to tell the true story. Following that is then the discussion on how do we repair? How do uh, we provide um, uh, whatever resources or what what have you that contribute? You know, that contributed to where the community is. The other piece that I take from the UN's definition of reparation um, is there's also at the end just making sure that it's not done again. And so when we're talking about reparations overall, it's uncovering, Mm -hmm. it's truth-telling, it's, yes, the discussion on how do we repay. And for me, that doesn't necessarily always have to be in the form of a check and written out from who and who writes the check. There's a repayment. And then there's also a commitment not to repeat it again, and that comes in different forms as well. So for me, I would say that is my working definition um, of reparations, beginning with the truth-telling. And because people are afraid of the conversation of a check and who mm-hmm. receives it and who writes it, we never start at one, which is truth-telling and uncovering.
9: So Noah, how, I'm sorry, how do these, Coleman, perspectives job with your idea of reparations?
13: Well, I think we've seen in the past few months that the word reparations increasingly means whatever anyone wants it to mean in the moment. Uh, Last year there was a bar in Portland that had a reparations happy hour where white people donated into a pot and black people drank for free for a few hours under under the heading of reparations. Um, it was so that's,
9: something like that. I happen to know that the black people got $10 in cash each. It wasn't about them getting free drinks. They left with $10 to do whatever they'd like, just as a point of
1: fact.
13: Okay, um, so that's, that's reparations for some people. To me, uh, reparations is something of a misnomer because the wrongs of history are generally too deep to actually be completely compensated. No Holocaust survivor really was made whole by the check they were given, no matter how large, by the German government. So I think it's easier to say what reparations is not than what it is. What what it really, I guess, an approximation would be it's a full-hearted recognition that a wrong was committed. Something happened that should not have happened. And more than that, it's an apology that feels more sincere because you're attaching something tangible to it because words are very cheap. That's what it should mean, I think.
9: I'm looking at you
14: Reverend Thompson well first of all thank you for having this important conversation one correction not um, an original founder of and Cobra I just want to correct that so okay. I don't get in trouble
11: uh,
14: <laughs> and I don't check out do I look that old brother to you, <laughs> you <know>? but <laughs> it's all good but again thank you for having us I agree with what everyone has said obviously reparations the root word is repair and so, uh, if we're talking about oppressed people in this country, and particularly, and let me just say, I'm, I'm in solidarity with uh, my brother, the Native American people. A lot of the conversation around reparations right now is around uh, of Africans who were enslaved. And um, as a descendant of, of African people who were enslaved, um, for many of us, reparations means spiritual repair, cultural repair, repair through the means of education Uh, Health um, um, Economics Society All of those things go together And so it is obviously much broader Than individual checks But helping to build and establish institutions So that at least African Americans Can catch up with white Americans White Americans had help In terms of the Homestead Act Which didn't include us (laughs) Um, Housing loans FHA That helped build the suburbs Uh, Social Security did did not include us Uh, and and someone said we see gentrification going on right now so uh, there were all of these helping hands given and we as African Americans uh, not to exclude the indigenous people at all uh, none of us can ever catch up because everyone else got a head start and we didn't so until we deal with that that's why I think it's also important and I know that in Cobra feels like that and national feels this way in the National African Americans Reparations Commission and the new H.R. 40 deals with it in this way. We can't only talk about slavery. Uh, we have to talk about slavery's vestiges. Because as soon as slavery was over, uh, we had the Jim Crow era and everything that resulted from that. And now we live in an era where we have modern-day lynchings by the hands of law enforcement. We have a racist criminal justice system. So the clock just keeps ticking, and the toll keeps going higher and higher. So the sooner America addresses all of these injustices, the better.
9: Right. I'm saying we got to pace ourselves. We got 90 minutes to go here. We got a lot to go to Professor Frankie.
15: It's hard to add anything to these amazing insights that the co-panelists here have um, contributed. But let me say, reparations are a tool, and they're an opportunity for us to recover a kind of history as Joy described, um, but to not relegate it only to history, to, but, but make it part of our national memory. So what we need to do with reparations, say for the Native American community, may be very different from what we would do for African Americans or for others in this country. So reparations are designed to repair a fundamental cultural form of injustice. And if we think about it specifically in the context of slavery, What we did with enslaved people was we legally freed them, but we never made them free. What we did is we abolished the institution, and then we said to a group of people who were abjectly poor, who could not read and write because it was illegal, actually it was criminal, to teach enslaved people to read or write, what we said to them is, go on, live your lives now as free people, What we needed to do at that time was give them the material resources in order to be actually free and full citizens. But we also needed to use those resources to recognize retroactively the terror, the rape, the death, the family separation, the humiliation of being enslaved. So reparations then were both backward-looking in terms of recognizing the fundamental, soul-killing nature of this institution, slavery, but also forward-looking in terms of creating the very possibility for people to be free. We haven't done it in the United States since then, and we need to do it now.
9: So listening to each of you share your perspectives, I wonder why this moment? Why, after doing a number of these town halls, we have definitely met with very passionate members of our community and been able to sit across from each other and share contrasting views, but still share and speak and be engaged. Why are people prompted to act so passionately and in some cases be so amazingly siloed as we talk about reparations in 2019?
12: You mean why is it a conversation that has now gotten to the level that it has?
9: That and why are people walking out of a room before hearing one word about what we're actually engaged in this evening?
12: Well, I'll start with the, the first point. I think it's because of political power. Um, so as you amass political power in this country, political and economic power, you get to uh, be contributors in terms of setting the agenda and setting what is at stake and what you know the conversation is. And so as people, as marginalized groups gain more political voice, more economic power, particularly more political power, you then have an opportunity to bring to the forefront uh, issues uh, that, you know, to some people may have been, you know, um, small, a small group here or there, you now are able to make it a central point in, say, a presidential election or something like that, because you've now amassed power as voters. You've now amassed power in terms of elected leadership who can bring this voice to the table um the first iteration of just a commission we didn't even talk about giving people checks we just talking about a commission study (laughs) was was 19? i was born in 1978 it was 1978 right Right. and having that conversation but if growing political power allows those people us to be able to set the agenda and for me the conversation about having a full throttle whether it's a commission or conversation or movement about reparations Connected to that is gaining political power so that you can set that agenda. So the more you see marginalized groups gaining political power and economic power We're able then to then set the table and determine what's on the menu and reparations just happen to be on the menu because we have greater political power now
15: I think there are two sides to this. This is absolutely right We have people of color running for president as serious candidates and many of them and their constituencies are pushing them to talk about this issue. We also have somebody in the White House who is an abject racist and isn't shy about it. So the, 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 the evil, the ugliness of white supremacy is out in the open in a way that we haven't seen before. Wait, which isn't oh, to say, which, wait, which it's, isn't been, to say, it's been racist and I'm not, <laughs> saying, no, I'm not saying we haven't had it before. Oh, okay. No, 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 but I think Donald Trump is giving voice to it and giving the, the blessings of the presidency. In a way we haven't seen before. Really cool. it's, um, out, it, it's out in the open, well, I mean,
16: maybe, yeah,
15: right, right, well. in recent period. So I don't want to say that we've not had white supremacy in this country before. I mean, that's been a, the founding value of this country from the first time that Europeans arrived. But I think there's something about the way that Donald Trump has inhabited it with a kind of joy. That has also motivated people to think deeply about racial repair in this country. Well, I think, I mean, also,
14: I think also we can be very specific. Donald Trump is, not, is no longer using the Nixon Southern strategy or the Lee Atwater strategy, quite frankly, which was a little more subtle. There were certain cold words. I agree with you, Joy. We've always had racism and white supremacy, no question about it. People were you know, doing the hagiography of, of H.W. Bush, but you know, let's face it, he did Willie Horton. Uh, I haven't forgotten that, yeah. uh, but again, that that was s- somewhat subtle. Donald Trump has thrown all that out the window, so he is an openly white supremacist individual. Uh, and right, it is it's it's a whitelash. I agree with the with the audience. Um, I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing, in answer to your questions, reparations come to the forefront. I think we also have to give credit where credit is due. Our brother Tadahashi Coates uh, wrote the piece. And, and it's good and bad in many ways. It was great that he wrote it, but I think we all would agree. Um, he wrote it, and it was in a mainstream white publication. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as much as the black press and black institutions and black organizations have been struggling around the issue of reparations for a, a century or yeah. more, um, you know, it wasn't until it was published in a mainstream white publication, oh, this might really be about something. And lastly, to Joy's point in terms of constituencies, and power um the the even more so i think the presidential candidates catherine um uh, democrats control the house so you can't talk about a new empowerment for women and latinos and other people and african-americans in general yeah. and not finally have to consider the john conyers legislation which has been out there for almost 30 years or more um and now it's been renewed and you and you can't really have from it why it's a very logical question for somebody, somebody to ask, what well, Democrats are you finally going to pass HR 40? And right now, there's serious discussion about doing that. So I think those are all the contributing reasons.
10: You know, I, I think uh, it, it may be somewhat Pollyannish, but I think uh, also an element that's being missed is that uh, as the population in general, we sort of have an intellectual parity that didn't really exist even 10 years ago. So that allows for a sort of an intellectual outreach to a more expansive thought, particularly like... Uh, a, a real code word is reparations. That's war. So now you're able to expand on the different meanings and what does that really look like. And that would not have happened if the society itself hadn't matured forward a bit. I'm not saying there's not all of these problems and I can give a whole soliloquy, can't speak, on the fact that uh, Jim Crow is happening now. Right. Manipulation of zoning is happening now. I'm in in a fight for our lives over our own property from people who feel it's entitled to manipulate the politics, to manipulate the security forces, to manipulate the communities. That's happening now. But on the other hand, it also gives some hope that our allies have all of us here. We have a like thought towards humanity. And I think if we sort of keep that light in front of us, we'll be able to walk forward and uh, we shall overcome. No, I don't know if we want to still rel- talk
11: about, um, about the, the sort of the political situation, but I'm curious just from a chronological perspective. I don't, I don't disagree with any of this, but a lot, my sense um, from the outside was that uh, this national conversation really started uh, in an active way in the second Obama administration. Um, when we had a black president. Um, and I wonder to what extent um, a lot of this reflects um, uh, disappointment with what that administration ultimately represented in terms of progress in some of these issues, that Black Lives Matter was still needed right. um, after we
17: had a black president.
9: Yeah. Well, I uh, want to go back one second to 2007 when uh, the president addressed the NAACP mm. and warned about reparations saying this may not be the fight right now because it would give other folks license to say we're done with the black question, where we should be galvanizing ourselves to fight for specific injustices in the courts and in society. And if we just put all of our steam into reparations, we don't have to, they will say that
12: reparations is done.
9: We don't have to pay attention to Everything that's happening.
12: Yeah. There is, I mean, we are are now having the benefit of time away from an Obama presidency to really evaluate um, as a whole sort of how that presidency had an impact on our lives and on the country overall, right? The more time and distance that you have, um, even, I would say, even from the Trump presidency, the more you have distance from um, that election, from that presidency, you're able to see it in a different light. Um, And so as we get further along, we start to have these conversations immediately afterwards about what was he able to do for the people that helped him get there in terms of voters but then also from the community from which he came Mm -hmm. um and so the conversation of reparations is not new in you know in society overall and when i talk about that connection of political power right and here was this hope that people had well now we have a black man in you know office clearly he's going to do something to address or repair you know the harm right and then there's a lot that you can say that the administration did that did, um, you know, etch away. But how no one person is going to be able to repair um, the, the, the centuries and sort of decades of racism, Jim Crow, enslavement, and all of that. Pack. That's, a, that's a ditch that you've got to really, you know, get down and dig in. Um, and so I think over time we'll have continue to have the conversation about the failure of an opportunity, but there's also within our own community the dialogue and the disagreement about whether or not we need to pursue reparations. And just to add, what I was going to add is there's H.R. 40, but Charles Barron has a bill here in the state of New York for it to set up a New York commission, right? Because there's also, living in a states' rights society, there's also the individual states and what they did to contribute to um, uh, the harm of communities of color and marginalized groups as well that we have to look at, right? So it's not just a federal conversation. It's a state conversation. It's also a corporate conversation, um, particularly from some of those corporations that st- still have existed, mainly right. banks and uh, insurance companies and things of yeah. that nature that we have to have this holistic conversation about so yes as we there is I don't personally don't put all of the blame on one particular person um, because they were in a position of in a power, am I disappointed that he didn't go far enough? Absolutely. Um, but is he the sole person to blame? You know, i for not for pres- not blame. Right. Not, well, I mean, I'm talking about that in general. He's not the sole person to blame for you know, the, the entire institution. Mm.
13: I would also say that sometimes there are just change in, changes in the culture and ebbs and flows. So when when nehisi Coates five years ago now wrote the case for reparations, he specifically said that he suggested, despite liking Obama, that Obama not pursue reparations. 2014 felt different culturally yeah. than mm-hmm. 2019 uh, did, and we should also remember, uh, right around 2001, there was a, a, w- a wave very similar to this one, where there, there was debates the about reparations, and it was it was a hot debate in 2001, and then a couple of year, years later, it just kind of fizzled. And um, I think it's some, There's some kind of difficult to explain, difficult to pin down the causation, just kind of ebb and flow with this conversation that is probably likely to continue. I don't expect this moment to continue for five years, maybe a year, maybe two, I'm not sure. But it's probably going to ebb and flow again based on history.
10: I think a missing element with all of this is we need to have or somehow come to a decisive understanding, a focus of where we're going with it. Otherwise, it's going to become an intellectual exercise you're right, it's going to ebb and flow, and before you know it, nobody's even going to know what you're talking about. So I think that uh, maybe perhaps not this forum at this moment. What well, we do need to convene is sit down and say, what are we talking about? Well, it sounds like a good one. And, <laughs> yeah, and I think a good example is the doctrine of discovery. I mean, I, I know people know more about it than the Pope. What's it doing? It's just been watered down into an intellectual uh, discourse, so...
12: And I think connected to that is who are the actors that need to participate in the reparations process? I think that's one of the things is that we call and demand for reparations, but it doesn't mean that the, I mean, if you're relying on American government to control and um, chart out a process for reparations, we will be waiting for 400 more damn years for that to happen, right? I think the overall process, starting first, we're talking about telling the truth and uncovering the dirt, that process is happening, Right. Right. right? And that doesn't have to come from... The government government actors to to do that that can come from professors' researching. that can come from elected officials you know uncovering documents that can come from a nehisi Coates writing in detail you know about the case that can come from the Color of Law which you know a book that details the housing discrimination and the laws and the Supreme Court cases that were ignored outright in order to create that so part of it is the uncovering and the digging and that doesn't all have to happen by the government as the actor, and I don't think it actually should. Um, I think the uncovering the truth-telling has to come from the outside, continuing to bang at the door to tell the truth on that. Um, and, you know, that process is happening now. And so even though it may not be, you know, uh, uh, the terminology may not be reparations, sort of uncovering that, you know, New York life insurance charged black folks more, you know, and then they had some kind of, that's part of the reparations and uncovering conversation. You know, talking about the banks and insurance companies or talking about Wall Street and property that was taken, or even just finding out where you came from and your genealogy because that was hidden and that was, you know, you were separated from that. That's all part of the conversation.
11: Um, I, it it sounds to me uh, and, and and forgive me if i'm mm-hmm. wrong about this that that there we have a little bit of disagreement anyway about what what the word um should mean that you have a very expansive conception of what of what reparations is that it, and and particularly that it is effectively an open-ended process because there's always going to be more more to learn yeah. there's and and so i guess what it sounds to me like what you're saying is that reparations is a way of thinking about social justice generally that focuses on what the sources are uh... within society that caused the uh... uh... uh, situation that we that we see today what are the harms that were historic that have continued uh... down into the present either in terms of continuing to happen or in continuing to have ripple effects from things that happened in the past the things that were done in the past Um, and i'm I'm curious if that if that's what you're saying really why you think from a political perspective that's the right way to frame things uh, in terms of getting, um, getting what you want to accomplish. Well,
12: because I think it's so connected and embedded in our society, and to your point of, is, you know, we have a reparations conversation, we've decided this is the reparations commission, this is what we're going to do, we're going to open books and we're going to give checks and we're going to do that and now it's done. Well, that still doesn't address... A criminal justice system that still has right yeah. that still doesn't address housing policy that's still on the books to this day, right? That still doesn't that still doesn't address all of those connections. It's similar to how I tell young people: just saying um, sometimes saying things are just racist without talking about how specifically is right. mm-hmm. racist is like throwing the bomb in the room, right? Because it's like just racism and everybody's off guard. To say specifically, oh no, there was an actual law that said black people couldn't live here and that's what the racism was, right? Like gives context in saying this was deliberate, it was planned, it was written out, thoughtful, and and continues to this day. And that's the uncovering that needs, the dismantling that needs to happen. So reparations is not an event, even if we have a conference or a commission or a study, like there's still so much interconnected in our society that we have to unpeel and disconnect
14: well what well, to be to be clear on that though.
12: I'm
9: sorry just
14: for
12: yeah, one
9: second, sure, sure. I just want to let you guys know we've been here for a half hour already so if you have some questions that you would like to uh, get in on the conversation you can make your way to uh, either of these aisles and I'll be uh, hopping by you can see that guy back there and uh, we'll bring the voices in so thank you
14: well, what I was going to say is, uh, first of all, in terms of addressing the, the moment, um, much of the progress that has been made in the reparations movement um, over the past number of years has happened outside of the context of mainstream media coverage. So even if this moment right now this very populous may seem to air and things do ebb and flow, um, we have continued reintroduction of H.R. 40 and a new H.R. 40 because of a movement that made it happen that wasn't on. You know, so everybody in the room should know being a part of reparations movement may not mean you get your name in lights uh, Or that it's constantly covered. Uh, That's number one Um, number two to address the conversation between um, Noah and joy um, Those who've been working in the movement uh, For example uh, in Cobra the National Coalition of blacks for reparations in America They're also part of of a larger coalition the National African American reparations uh, Commission um, have helped to rework and redraft H.R. 40 in such a way that some of the uh, academics and thought leaders and obviously some politicians would be a part of, com- of a commission to determine what forms of reparations should take. Mind you, the original H.R. 40 uh, was going to study whether or not there should be reparations. So this is different now. There is consensus that there ought to be, and now it is a question of what form it should take. And um, the the 10-point program that some of those thought leaders in NCOBRA and the African American Reparations Commission have put together is online, ibw21.org, and also ncobraonline.org. And it charts out even some of the things you just named, um, how specifically we address uh, issues of land, economics, access to capital, um, which is larger than just an individual check. You know, because we get into checks now every two weeks. But, again, we don't have the capital that others have had to build successful businesses. What do we do to change the criminal justice system? Mm-hmm. So it may not be a group gets together, says this is reparations, and then it's resolved in six months. Right. You know, this may be something ongoing. They also make the case for there to be institutions for the ongoing study of 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 oppression and what has happened to african-americans um institutions that go in and revamp the education system Uh, i remember when we used to debate about more african-centered education that's not a popular term anymore but we know that a lot of our educational systems um still educate people from a very white centric point of view how do we overhaul that how do we change what's in the textbooks how do we support our HBCUs, yes. which still need support, particularly our medical schools, like in Meharry and Howard, um, where people need to be educated to deal with the health disparities that are ongoing in the African-American community. So, you know, all of those things, you know, in that 10-point program, if you want to go online and look, are laid out very, very specifically. But that's just one uh, one stab at it. This commission will consider uh, everybody's thoughts in the process. That would be the plan anyway. Mm-hmm. And I also agree with Joy, uh, everybody in this room and everybody watching around the country lives in a state of city. City councils and state legislatures aren't waiting on H.R. 40 in Congress. They're doing their own things to address reparations in their communities. So what some of you can do is do that at home as well.
9: So I'm hearing a lot about the theme of justice and restoration, and it just puts me in the mind earlier I was looking at uh, the four pillars of Restorative justice, mm-hmm. so the four, inclusion of all parties, number one, encountering the other side, making amends for the harm, and finally, reintegration into communities. So taking those four pillars of restorative justice into account, how would restorative justice be different or dovetail with reparative justice, Professor Frankie?
15: Well, this is my chance to be the law professor in the room, (laughs) although there may be others that could jump in uh, if they'd like to. Um, Reparations is actually a more narrow concept than restorative justice. Uh, Reparations addresses, in the law, at least the way we think about it, and I think some of us have a more political conception of it, but at least in the law, as repairing a specific injury or a specific harm, even if it's massive, like white supremacy or slavery in this country, right? Reparative justice is about repairing an entire society. Um, And that can be a much larger project. And I think sometimes the question of reparation gets collapsed into what I think we would all also agree that we are in favor of, which is creating a non-racist society. Mm -hmm. And so some of the measures that we would take to excise structural racism from every corner of our society, maybe more than what we would actually say would be entailed in reparations for slavery. So one way to narrow the question and maybe dis- distract attention from the happy hour version of reparations that Coleman was talking about is to keep bringing us back to the history, that the contemporary criminal justice system and its deep racist root right. began the day that slavery was abolished. Right? The imprisonment of black men, mostly black men but not only, but mostly black men in the 1860s was a response to their cry to be free. Right? We didn't imprison black men when they were enslaved because why would you imprison something that's working for you? Right. Yep. Right? We allowed discipline of, on whatever manner um, to take place on plantations by the slave owner, him or, him or herself. But once we abolished slavery, we created public prisons for us to collectively punish people as as an act of racism in so many contexts. So we would trace the criminal justice reform, I think, backwards and recover that memory and reclaim it as part of our present, of understanding those roots as coming from that original evil um, uh, uh, from the founding, really, and before the founding of this country. Uh, But but this one last thing I, I don't want to leave out. Chief Perry and the issues of Native Americans, which it's so often the issues of reparations uh, become overwhelmed by the very compelling issue of how to deal with the ongoing problem of not having repaired um, slavery or the enslavement of black people in this country. But the kinds of reparations that we might talk about for Native people have so much more to do with restoring, restoring sovereignty, right? And an identity is a separate national um, a, a group or tribe or collectivity, and those um, those sorts of collective injuries and the genocide and uh, of the acts of discovery. It was just sort of a, a, a lovely term that covers up that genocide and killing from the very beginning. Those kinds of remedies look very different, I think, than what we would look for in the context of how we have treated and mistreated African Americans. So I want I want to make sure that you continue to be part of this I'm just this conversation. Everybody, how
10: do we Or we need to look at uh, how do we provide a comfort level now that will allow us to set our people free. A good example, right now we're looking at uh, systemic denial of education generationally. So now we have people for unknown generations that have been encouraged to get out of school at 15 to 16. The only good living wage job you can get is, say, driving a snowplow for the town if you wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or an editor or a professor, it's not there because you weren't allowed to, you were denied the education. So in effect, what you have is indentured servitude going on now. And for those people trapped in that sort of cycle, in that morass, what do we do to bring a comfort level, to bring enough strength to say, hey, it's okay to speak up. When Johnny drives a snowplow, I'm Johnny's cousin. Where are the people, what does the allies look like? that step forward to resolve those forms of modern-day uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. And if it's happening for my folks, I'm sure it's happening for a lot of other people.
13: I fear that we're kind of talking around the main issue, though, because there are many people, including people on the right wing, uh, like the Koch brothers, who support criminal justice reform. The First Step Act, obviously they, ref- they, they support it because it's costly, right? So for a totally different reason. But the First Step Act just passed bipartisan reducing mandatory minimum sentences, right? So when people hear reparations, which is this very controversial topic, I don't think they're thinking, oh, they mean criminal justice reform, they mean repairing society. What they're thinking and what the public meaning, I think, right now in America is, is programs or benefits or a check or, or a deeper program that is allocated to descendants of slaves and not to other people. And I think that's the crucial variable that makes it, um, uh, for, for most people who hear that term, controversial it's not that it's just criminal justice reform what do you mean most well when you say most people well reparations in in america at large it's a very contentious topic people yell at each other on cable news over it when they hear that word i don't think they're thinking we've been talking about criminal justice reforms uh, you know like you know a lot of structural issues that that exist in this country, but I don't think that's what people are thinking when they hear the word reparations, and I don't think that's what they're opposing when they oppose it either.
14: So I feel we're talking around the most controversial part. Well, I, clearly we aren't. Uh, um, I think what happens is a lot of these talking heads are people on television don't know anything about reparations and have been involved in it. The people around this table, uh, so to speak, um, obviously have a mo- more holistic view, and the movement does as well. And if people who were legitimately involved in the movement were allowed to have more open conversations and allowed to be on some of these panels that don't include people who really know about reparations, I think the public would be much more informed about it. As far as the Koch brothers and what Jared Cush and everybody does, you know, they aren't – they don't deserve credit for that. Um, The criminal justice reform movement has been going on since, as you said, since we were first criminalized as a people after slavery. So they're just riding on whatever popularity that exists right there, but they're riding on the backs of those mostly people of color who started that movement over centuries. Right. Well,
12: the, the other thing I would add to that conversation, because mm-hmm. whether it's reparations or any other kind of work on behalf of marginalized people in this country is that there has to be some kind of PR thing that has to happen to make people sort of be more accepting of your humanity and your dignity and the rights that you deserve being in this country and I always call BS on that. (laughs) Um, I don't need to make you feel better about what I'm rightfully entitled to Um, and so there's a different kind of organizing model (laughs) of... negotiating sort of organizing from a position of power. I'm not going to ask for anything that you are giving me out of charity. I'm ask, I'm going and fighting for something that I am deserving and that I'm owed. That's a different level of organization. I'm not asking for all to buy. I'm asking for the money and for the land and for the support and the resources that uh, marginalized people in this community. That's a totally different thing. So I'm not interested in trying to massage, even as a strategist, I'm not interested in trying to massage people's ego or package it differently in order to get what a human uh, deserves in terms of rights and responsibility.
11: Well, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, um... And uh, I mean, sort of the, the, the whole conception, as I understand it, I hope I'm following this all, is uh, of reparations is that it starts with the conception of a debt, right? So it's not, it's not charity. Yeah. It, it it's never. I mean, even when no, you I go back. Not doing a favor. yeah, I mean, the word can change. We did y'all a favor. <laughs> absolutely.
1: <laughs>
9: um, okay, I want absolutely. to draw your attention to. Uh, that we actually compiled Uh, Mark uh, you were just a second ago asking about what people so we have some general ideas about the public perception of reparations so overall the opposition to reparations when we're looking at a large group is 68 percent if we break that out Millennials are opposed to reparations by about 49 percent whites as a general are opposed by 81 percent And we're looking at the public perception about reparations and those opposed to it so at the bottom of that scale is 35% of people who identified as black say that they are in opposition to reparations so looking at that we see that young folks are getting on board black folks continue to be overwhelmingly on board but white America not so much feeling reparations at the moment
16: so (laughs) yeah. That actually is sort of the basis of my question. As someone who does believe in the theory of reparations for African descendant and Native people, recognizing that we got voting rights, we got a, a form of reparations immediately following slavery, a form of. It was quickly taken back because of violent white supremacy. We had a form of uh, uh, voting rights again, civil rights again, Fair Housing Act, Act again in the 1960s, which has been almost essentially eroded via the courts and through the resurgence of violent white supremacy and the, and the respect for and the institutionalization of violent white supremacy 2019. Given that, and given Derek Bell's theory that's of interest convergence that says white people are only willing to support black interests so long as and up until the point that it helps white people, and as soon as it no longer benefits white people, they will pull back. What sense does it make under this reality to continue to push and invest black energy into fighting for reparations, which would have to come from folks who agree, who believe what we just saw on the screen, as opposed to recognizing, yes, it is owed to us, and just like any other assault or major trauma victim, it would be wonderful if the oppressor would acknowledge it, repair it, and, and allow us the space to move on. But if they never do, we still have to correct, heal, and move on regardless. And so my question is, cost-benefit analysis, do we continue to put another hundred of years into trying to get back what they took back in the 1860s? while we're losing ground and what we lost in integration because what we thought was going to give us in progress we now no longer have our own businesses our own economy our own ability to employ our own people we have lost so much trying to integrate into this space that has been so explicitly hostile to us is this more than a theory and a discussion or is there actually something concrete that i will be able to say that my great-grandchildren will be able to experience the benefit of what we're arguing for now I'm just saying, is this a space that we should be investing energy after the yes, past 200 years? Absolutely. Yes, a cost-benefit
9: analysis.
12: I would say yes. Until we burn it down and create something new, then within the space and the institution that we're in, yes, you continue to seek grievance.
14: And and also, I would I would add to that, how many how many centuries were we enslaved, sister? Uh, enslaved
16: before yeah. the uh, before the. Before, Emancip- before
14: Emancipation Proclamation, how many centuries? Oh, a
16: couple, about 200 as a country, but then there's a 1619 okay. up until I'm the country sure formed. was formed. I'm
14: sure there were some people in those centuries. Some people were born and died who yes. were enslaved. Yes. I'm sure there were some who said, you know, we're never going to get out of this. Yes.
1: Yeah.
14: When Dr. King was alive, there were some who said, we're never going to change this. The price of freedom, as Frederick Douglass said, is eternal vigilance. What you leave. To your descendants your grandchildren and their grandchildren is just that Isn't eternal right. vigilance to continue the fight other cultures do it the indigenous people are here they haven't stopped so it's it's ridiculous those who are victims of the holocaust don't stop so it doesn't make sense for us and see that's why we still need to continue to fight reparations first of all we never had it the right to vote no no we never had it. the right to vote desegregation uh, the right to intimate those are those those were not reparational they weren't even considered that as a matter of fact the proof that they weren't is because they always threatened to be taken away to be very specific the, the the field order, Marshall's field order was reparations 40 acres and a mule we never got it that was reparation that was never given us so so we've not had it yet and we can't give up the fight. One of the things, one of the arguments that is being made in terms of what would be uh, a form of reparations is education, is access uh, to culture, is being reeducated about who we are. Dr. Jonathan Clark used to say the greatest thing stolen from us was our ancestral memory, not knowing when people lost everything in the flood in New Orleans. You know, the thing they complained about, not the furniture and the cars, but the photographs. We don't know who our ancestors were, where we came from. So what reparatory justice would do, that could also be included. Who are we? Who can I connect with? Who would I have been if my ancestors were not captured and brought over here? That is something that will always be worth fighting for, this generation, the next one, and, and on and on.
12: And some of that action, to my earlier point, some of, that, some of that action to my earlier point, you cannot give over to a government entity to do. Because they're not going to have the same care and the same concern. Just as the sister who just asked the question says this all the time, or like you've given over education of your child to a system that is racist and doesn't, you know, and and doesn't believe that you are, you know, equal in as a citizen or in as a human. So why would you give over your children's education to someone who is racist? The same thing. We can't give reparations in its totality over to an institution to control we have to control it for ourselves and say what it is and part of that that's why i talk about building what this what this current institution currently understands and moves with is political and economic power and so the more that we advance in political and economic power yeah. then we can control and set the table of of what happens
1: so
9: I have a question, and, I, and this is also prompted by something in your writings, Noah, looking at reparations and seeing the strain that we're talking about now about empowering people and educating children in a culturally specific way that is in line with developing them as whole people. Are we calling reparations a sort of separatism mm-hmm. by another name? Is it possible to repair and have one nation when people have been so aggrieved and obviously in need of correction. What does that do to our fabric as a country if something needs to be addressed in that way that is completely foreign from what has been in place to this point? Can we stay a United State if people are repaired to the way where they get their
15: dignity and still be integrated into a country? Brian, you know, well, I, the, I, the reparations that actually were delivered. Yeah to formerly enslaved people in the Sea Islands and in Davis Bend, um, Mississippi, were in the form of 40 acres, they were in the form of a mule, but they were also in the form of community safety and exclusion. Mm -hmm. So Sherman's field order said you're going to get this land and we're going to keep white people away. And so part of what I think we also have to be talking about is healing. And healing, I think in this context, can probably take place best with communities on their own. You don't need me there to help the African-American community to heal. I can tell the stories, but I think for some period of time, black folks need to be with themselves to figure out what this new world should look like. And that to me was just one of the fundamental crimes of what happened at the end of the Civil War, is people were given land, lots of land, right? In these various contexts, Lincoln is assassinated, Johnson becomes president, and the first thing he does, the first thing he does as president is grant amnesty to the former slave owners and give them their land back. And it was violently taken. In, in
9: reparations for slaves that they lost. Yeah.
15: Exactly. Well, no, not, not exactly, because that's the one thing that they didn't get, but that was certainly the ethos of the time. Okay. But, the, but the, the, the idea then is that repair could only happen... With the black community themselves to build a free life. So, I
8: just can, you
11: know, clarify something about something that I wrote, which yeah. is I, I, I don't think I was saying that reparations are uh, a separatist movement. I think what I was saying was that uh, the concept of reparations is inherently intercommunal, right? One, you know, a, a, and, and as such presumes that a separation already exists, right. presumes that there are distinct. Uh, distinct from a identities, distinct to a nation state. Uh, could be traditionally likely. yes, from a nation state to a nation state. It doesn't have to be, um, but presumes uh, a, a divide that already exists. It's a way to repair the divide, but because it presumes that a divide already exists, you have to organize politics around that existing divide. And I think that's, I think that's the political question at the heart of what of what, um, uh, of, what of what you were saying was, uh, is that the most just from a purely pragmatic perspective whether that's whether Emphasizing the divide that does exist and organizing around it is the best way to get the most practical results I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's that's underlying the question is is is, is whether that's right or
10: wrong And I don't know I think a, perhaps a, a working strategy I was going to mention before you so eloquently sort of outlined it is that I think we're a bit too egocentric with this uh, reparations in that yeah, I know, don't let your heads blow up yet now. Just wait a minute.
1: It's
10: it's just that there is a very powerful tool that's been used throughout history to keep people of color down. It's being used right now to keep color, people of color down. Now, what is that tool? It's this tool that Lyndon Johnson, let me paraphrase him. He said, as long as you can make the dumbest white man think he's smarter than the smartest black man, you will control him forever. That's the tool that is keeping us fighting about reparations. Ain't no white man in no nice house coming down here. They got a knucklehead coming down here looking for you. So what I would suggest is maybe in the terms of reparations, maybe one of the things that could happen is maybe a little better outreach in terms of general education. I'm not at all trying to suggest we put these people on par. These are people that specialize in hanging people. You know, and if you think about it, and I don't want to be mean to any white folks, but this is a fact. I've been on this earth quite a while. I have never met any people of color that sat down and said, hey, it's Tuesday. Let's go hang some white boys. Mm. That's a white thing. And it's a dumb white <laughs>
13: thing. I'm just, I'm, just you to hang yeah, down I universe. mean, I, I, I agree with, I, there, are so so many many to to there are so many things to fix. There are so many systems to fix in America today. And... I, that really seems like a separate issue to me than the pure issue, issue of reparations. Oh, when I hear the talk of uh, burning the system down, replacing it with something new, what I think of is not some kind of utopia where we've abolished racism. What I think of is Zimbabwe in 2000, where black militias marched onto white farms, said rightly, you took this from us, we're going to take it back. What they, what they, they, they literally did that at gunpoint. And what happened? It completely destroyed the economy of the country. Zimbabwe used to be called the breadbasket of Africa. So After why? that, it couldn't. It so couldn't. Why? Are you saying this was going on with the reparations movement? You're comparing that reparations movement. What I'm so
1: saying why?
12: is, you don't
13: burn why? the system why? Why? down. You don't no, burn you the can't. system.
12: I want you to continue the example. So, I'll and continue. That if you're going to use the example, I was continuing the example. No, but I'm, I want you to explain why the economy. I was economy. about to.
13: I was about to. I was about to
12: explain why the economy.
13: Okay, so well. You you march onto somebody's farm, you take their farm. They've been there for decades. They know which fertilizers work with the soil, which uh, don't. Decades. Right. Every patch of land is very different. You don't know how to do it as well as they did because it was their patch of land. Investors pull out because crops are failing. Now you're no longer the breadbasket yeah, of Africa. You, you, you know think what I'm
12: That's saying? the reason why the economy.
13: But I don't know. Instead, what main stream stream it it okay. re- just just mainstream and uh, al back relates to real- Okay, just keep us Absolutely. on track.
9: I happen to know, uh, we have a question here, but I can tell you that since what, about 2009, white farmers have been compensated about $69.4 million for the loss of the land that they had taken from people before they got expatriated from it. And much of the impetus for that compensation of those farmers was to uh, not draw the ire of the Western world and get reinvestment in Zimbabwe. So and, and what
13: about the fact that calories went down 45% for the average Zimbabwean in that period? But what
9: does Zimbabwe
13: have to do with what we're talking about? they've tried to do
15: reparations, land-based reparations it's in Zimbabwe. Example. But you can't blame the reparations movement for the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy. You just can't. Why?
13: It's a direct a, consequence. A, no,
15: you've a, got a, random facts no, <laughs> so they no. don't
12: connect. That what? Together. No, they're not. About this a is holistic a holistic system that was opposed to black people taking control of their own land. You actually well, Google then Zimbabwe in the 2000s. you have a corporate uh, and a banking society that then decides <laughs> that you taking back what it originally belonged to you means that I'm not going to invest anymore. That is the collapse of the economy the collapse of the economy happens because white institution and white supremacy says you can't take something just because I had it even though you originally owned it so that's what that is it's not just because they didn't know which seed to go in the ground are you kidding me
1: so so, so
13: you know something you know something that all of the mainstream historians and economists and journalists in Zimbabwe don't know you know something they don't know. Uh, no, but they, uh, I would
12: say expand,
17: they took and I did study that home. case, and
12: I would say expand who you are reading about yes. that.
17: <laughs> yeah, um, I think that um, the struggle for reparations is a legitimate struggle in and of itself. At the same time, there's the struggle around police brutality, environmental racism, uh, structural and institutional racism and to me the key question I'd like to get a response is how do you integrate you Now, as if Obama said put uh, re- uh, reparations on the shelf and deal with the issues the the real question is how do you link the two how, how does the struggle for reparations play itself out uh, in the course of struggling for land rights for instance for black farmers as well as Native Americans uh, the fight against police murder uh, the fight against uh, the kind of racism that we see throughout the society. I'd like to hear if there are any uh, thoughts about how, how that gets integrated, because to me that's the basic question.
15: Well, a, part of what we, what we know is that there is so little land in black hands. Mm. And because of that, yeah. black people have very little control over their own communities, whether it's how they're policed, what sort of stuff gets dumped in their water. Right? And so, one of the things I recommend in the book is that we increase the estate tax, and we tax what is the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth we have ever seen ever. Mm. Right. And most of that wealth lies, and you've got another uh, uh, slide somewhere that I saw go by earlier. Most of that wealth lies in black, or excuse me, white families. Right. Why do they? Why have white families accumulated wealth? Uh, in scores more times than black families because of land ownership right Uh, here it is median household income so of
9: course ta Coates brought this issue to the forefront and he uh, in modern times he brought it to the forefront uh, couching it in the uh, story and the truth of housing discrimination and particularly redlining and we happen to know that household income is most often excuse me, household wealth, yes. most right, well, accumulated through land and property. And this is just one of the uh, breakdowns of the wealth gap in terms of race. In the median income, uh, household income in 2016, we're looking at Native Americans just over $39,700, black people uh, below them, uh, just below at $39,400, and uh, white Americans household median income from that same year. The numbers you should actually there.
11: have wealth numbers up there because the disparity would be much larger. Yeah. Oh, the disparity yeah. is. I mean, much the disparity smaller than it is. Yeah. And
12: I think also when you're talking about going deeper, right, because. The conversation, people think wealth gap just means, oh, he has five more dollars than I do or, you know, more in his savings than I do. How is the
9: difference between income and wealth? <laughs> Rather than
12: talking about the over, you know the overall wealth, but there's also this, the, the strategic, somebody sitting at a desk and contributing to this conversation on even the land that black. And marginalized communities do own, mm-hmm. valuing it lower than others, which actually has an impact on our communities overall. Because where do education dollars come from, right? So it, th- th- that is when, we, when I when I talk about just saying racism alone, right. or just saying and not talking about the strategic ways in which these decisions, this decision has to be made. A decision has to be made in terms of valuing land over another, and sort of talking about robbing people, or even the conversation on gender which is a whole nother town hall, <laughs> but talking about devaluing land that uh, marginalized communities even own, which also strips of wealth.
11: No, um, I think some of the discussion about economics um, ties into something that we've been talking about, about how open-ended the question of reparations is. Because um, from a business perspective, a business isn't based on justice. And, and it isn't. Um, and um, so if you're interested in wealth generation, if you're interested in sort of what conditions allow businesses to grow, allow people to accumulate wealth, um, uh, it's understand in an honorable way, let's say, if not a just way, not cheating people. It's having rules of the road and an understanding that the accumulation is possible and knowing what, what will happen. A one-time decision, a closure that transfers wealth from one group to another is very different from an open-ended process that says this is you know this is potentially going to go on we're going to discover more things we're going to keep, um, uh, uh, keep this process going and I think that's I guess I take the opposite view of you about what people are afraid of to the extent people are afraid of reparations I, I think people are less afraid of uh, uh, a sense that oh there's going to be a check written one time to somebody who's not me um, I think they would actually probably more support if there were a sense that this was this is an end of the discussion, mm-hmm. and that's actually not the end of the discussion, yeah. as you're as you're saying, it, it is an ongoing. It's uh, to
12: the Voting Rights Act, right? Think about how the parameters of the Voting Rights Act it was that it wasn't just simply about one event to fix. It was yeah. creating a check and a monitor in a way that allowed to um, monitor this process going forward, right? That you had to present a plan you know, of changing voting laws or changing polling sites or, you know, drawing districts and things of that nature, um, because we recognized at that time that this was an ongoing, like, you know, voter suppression was an ongoing thing that was going to happen, right? And so we created a system, if you will, to keep institutions in, that being the states, right. um, in check because we knew this was a tool that would consistently be used. And so that's what I'm sort of arguing in terms of the reparations conversation is that people in power in general are always going to drum up new different ways to (laughs) keep their power, um, keep their wealth, and keep their money, right? And so it's an ongoing conversation. That's just part of the human condition, right? It's just the more power you amass and the more money you amass, you want to keep it. And so you're going to do everything possible in order to do that. and so that's why I'm saying this, this conversation overall, there has to be this ongoing conversation and not just a one-time thing, oh, we're sorry, here's something, and now we're done. Yeah, I'm a little I'm bit... I'm, 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 a... I'm sorry, one second.
9: Just on that theme, we actually recently had a chance to meet a woman from a community that has experienced reparations in the American context. It was a one-time thing that is in danger of being lost only to scholarship. So I invite you to take a look at this story.
7: On the morning of December 7th, 1941, my mother got a phone call from my sister's best friend's father, who was uh, at the at an editor at the Daily News. He said, tell your husband to come home right away. And my mother said, to him, are you crazy? It's not even noon. And Mr. Wagner said, no, really, you tell him that Japan just bombed Pearl Harbor.
1: Citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid
10: all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria.
7: The day after Pearl Harbor, the one family said, we are loyal Chinese Americans. We're not like the Japs in apartment 52. And so then we used to go to school together and play together. They no longer, you know, played with us. Some of the Japanese Americans were sent to Ellis Island. There were Japanese Americans like my parents and others who were here on the on the East Coast, many of whom were not put in a concentration camp. But there were effects financially and emotionally um, that, that were a, a kind of damage that was different from being put in a camp our neighbors were sending their daughters to a summer camp you know sleepaway camp and so they asked my parents if my sister and i would like to go and on visiting day one of the things that happened was um everybody came you know to visit and take their children away somewhere on visitors day and so my parents didn't come and my sister and i ran into the woods and we cried and we said our parents don't love us the way real American parents do. Years, many years later, my mother was a widow by that time, and so she used to eat dinner with us every single night. And, um, I said to her, y- you, you,